Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute on Ideas. Today, we'll be talking with Kaylin O'Connor about her new book, which she wrote with her co-author, James Owen Weatherall, called The Misinformation Age, How False Ideas Spread. Doctors O'Connor and Weatherall are philosophers of science who teach at the University of California at Irvine. Kaylin O'Connor, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Renee. I'm delighted to be here. Some say that alongside the current global pandemic is an infodemic, a highly transmissible deluge of conspiracy theories, lies, and propaganda, alternative facts, misinformation, and truthiness. Your book couldn't have come at a more important time. So let's get right down to it. News and information was once held to be about facts. The five W's, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Well, how. (laughs) But your book is about beliefs, especially false beliefs. Tell us why and where do beliefs come from anyway? Well, so when we talk about beliefs in the book... People shouldn't understand that to be about, you know, faith or um, beliefs that couldn't change. So sometimes people think about that as a sort of more faith uh, related word. But we really just mean the things that you believe to be true. What you think about matters of fact. Um, And, you know, we talk about beliefs because they're, of course, one of the most important things in determining what people do and whether they end up making decisions that are the decisions that are good for them. And where do those beliefs come from? So they come from a lot of different places. One of the things that um, we focus on in the book are the social origins and the social spread of belief. So many of us think of ourselves as kind of these individually rational, almost computer-like learners. But if you look at the way humans actually adopt beliefs, they tend to pick up almost all of them from other people. So if I ask you, um, how do you know that uh, the earth goes around the sun? The answer isn't that you've spent a lot of time observing the movements of heavenly bodies. The answer is that a teacher or a parent told you and you just trusted them. So that's where we get almost all of our beliefs, just directly from other people. Hmm. But during this COVID pandemic, it only happened a couple of weeks ago, A scientist was quoted as saying, I am a scientist. I don't believe authorities. I believe data. So tell us, why why was she incorrect? Why is the scientific community also vulnerable to false beliefs? So um, I take it that what that scientist is trying to say is something like, look, I'm not going to be swayed by what politicians are trying to get me to do. I'm going to be swayed by the data I actually see. 
but of course, scientists, like all of us, are humans and do learn from each other as well as from evidence that they gather from the world. Um, so many scientists, of course, are learning true things from the evidence they gather from the world. When we're talking about the social spread of beliefs, and one thing that's important about it, as I think you're hinting at, is that you know, when we learn things from each other, this is a really powerful ability to have. It means that we can spread all these ideas and truths really quickly. But of course, it also means that false things can be shared from person to person as well. And that happens with ordinary humans and scientists too. But shouldn't scientists be protected against just following the group, social contagion? Well, many scientists do strike out from group beliefs. Um, but if you think about it, there are so many things that we all believe, so many things we know. None of us has the time or the money or the anything to figure out whether all of those are true by ourselves, just digging into evidence. So when I talked about the Earth going around the sun, how many of us have the time to sit down with star charts and figure out whether that's really true or the money to send uh, you know, a probe up into space and figure out when that's really true? Um, given that we have these limited resources, that means we really do have to trust other people and scientists do too. So you know, each scientist may have some small realm that they themselves are working on and where they're creating new knowledge, but for everything else, they have to trust their peers. In your book, you make an interesting and important distinction between individual and group rationality. How can an individual, individually rational people, come together to form groups that are not rational at all? Yeah, so I think this is a really important distinction because we tend to think about rationality with respect to what an individual does. But um, so part of my work is in this area of philosophy called social epistemology, where what people think about is how we come to know things as social knowers, as members of groups. And one of the big arguments there is this thing you just said, that rationality for an individual and rationality for a group can come apart. So here's an example. There's this phenomena that was first identified in economics called an information cascade, where you could have a whole group of people who each have bits of private information. So maybe everybody knows something about um, GM stock, let's just say, stock in some company. Uh, and they have this private information, they have to make some decision whether they're gonna sell stock or not. And say the first one of them, their private information makes them think they ought to sell it, so they sell it. Now the next person uh, has their private information, maybe it tells them they ought to buy, but if they see someone else selling, that makes them think, oh, it might be rational for me, in fact, to sell. So they might sell too. And this could set off a cascade where a bunch of people are making completely rational decisions, but the group ends up doing something really stupid. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a herd mentality? Yeah, in that case, it doesn't even have to do with something about herd mentality. It's just that the way information gets transferred, where we watch each other and see what each other do, what each other say, means that our private bits of information might get overwhelmed by public information and then end up 
we could end up misled from that. Another way that um, a group composed of rational individuals can be irrational is when uh, everybody thinks that they ought to do the same thing because the evidence suggests they ought to do the same thing, but it would be better for people to kind of split up. So it might be, just to give a little example, maybe there are three restaurants in town. Everybody has heard that restaurant A is the best one. And so everyone rationally goes to restaurant A, but there isn't enough room for everyone. And so there isn't like a good experience. And so a group would be better dividing up between the restaurants, um, but everyone acting kind of rationally in their own best interest can lead to an inefficient group. Mm-hmm. I see. If we move over to science, that uh, that area that's been pretty battered lately, um, we like to think of science as a very objective undertaking, even though we all understand it takes place within a paradigm and a worldview of its own time and place. It is objective, as objective as it can be, given those limitations. And that's even more true for the softer fields like uh, politics and psychology, as compared perhaps to chemistry or physics. But is the limitation of knowledge in that respect different from the deeper issues of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and how they spread? Sorry, is the limitation of um, science? Yeah, the the limitation of knowledge in science because of time and place and whatever the paradigm of the time is. is also a limitation, but it doesn't compare to the limitations and the distortion of information that we find in the wider world, the world of misinformation, disinformation, and how they spread. Yeah, that's right. So, of course, there are all sorts of limits in science, but when it comes to finding out about things about the world, this is the best that we've got. And in fact, you know, over hundreds of years, scientific communities have built up all these practices that make scientific communities generally pretty good at finding out about the world. Now, if we compare that just to the process by which you or I or anyone is sort of sharing knowledge, say over the internet, it's a different kind of scenario. (laughs) So, um, we don't have peer-reviewed journals. We don't use statistics. Uh, we don't have the same standards of argumentation. And that means that um, communities on, say, social media or face-to-face communities where we're, communi- we're just sharing ideas or spreading information with each other can be um, subject to the spread of misinformation, false beliefs, disinformation in a way that is harder within scientific communities. And there are also forces that have agendas, especially if we stick with the science world, the anti-science people. Uh, For example, the Tobacco Institute, uh, the Merchants of Doubt, and from then through to today's anti-vaxxers, they are really promoting a point of view without, or so it seems to me, and here's my prejudice, without too much concern about whether their point of view is correct. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, so both we can see these individuals who are trying to control what people believe. And there are so many propagandists and actors out there who want to control public belief, right? And so we both see these individuals trying to control what happens within a scientific community. And that's one thing Big Tobacco managed to do, at least to some degree, for decades in trying to confuse public belief about health. We also see these interest groups, you know, politicians, uh, members of industry, foreign governments, our own governments, trying to control public belief in various ways, including about scientific matters of fact. Um, so, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So we've got these uh, groups in both areas who are using a lot of techniques to try to um, confound belief, basically. Okay, the, those examples are uh, are people or groups with a clear agenda. At least the Tobacco Institute people were. I'm not sure about the anti-vaxxers, but is there an example of the scientific community itself being led astray by its own beliefs and social factors? Yeah, there are many examples from the history of science of various failures that occur, at least in part, because of social factors in science. So one that we talk about in our group is a very famous example of this um, physician who lived in Vienna named Ignaz Semmelweis. So he took charge of an obstetrical clinic where women were dying um, at a very high rate of what they called childbed fever. So he was alarmed by this and had a kind of aha moment when a colleague of his was performing an autopsy and accidentally pricked himself and then died of what looked like childbed fever. And Semmelweis thought, well, I've got all of these student physicians who are performing autopsies and then going and delivering babies. Maybe they're carrying something on their hands that's making the women sick. So he implemented hand washing in his clinic and the death rates in the clinic dropped way down. It went from something like 10% to 3%. Um, he published about this and tried to convince other physicians to wash their hands and have their patients wash their hands. But there was a huge amount of resistance, despite the fact that he had such excellent evidence that this practice worked. And we argue that that resistance was largely social. So first of all, people were offended by the idea that they as gentlemen might have unclean hands. But second, we argue that there was probably some kind of conformity effect going on. So people really don't like to stick out from the pack. They don't like to disagree with others. It's uncomfortable to be the first person doing something new, especially if it looks weird or doubtful, if you think your peers might judge you. So we think that is part of what explained why these other physicians didn't take up this really successful practice. And do you think that trust played a role in it, that the other physicians just didn't trust this newfangled idea or didn't trust Semmelweis? Yeah, well, part of it may have been that there was some distrust of Semmelweis. Um, of course, in these cases, there are probably usually multiple factors uh, at play. Another case we talk about where it's very clear that distrust was playing a big role in preventing the uptake of a good practice is um, one that happened earlier. So in the 18th century, this British uh, aristocrat named Lady Mary Wortley Montague had traveled to Turkey and 
saw the practice of variolation there, which is very similar to vaccination for smallpox. When she tried to bring it back to England, um, she met a huge amount of resistance from physicians there. And at least part of that seems to have been because she was a woman and this was a practice coming from not only women, but women in modern day Turkey. Uh, So women who are considered outsiders, Muslim women. And so probably there was some aspect of conformity going on there too. The physicians didn't want to be the first one trying this new practice that seemed weird where their peers might judge them. But also she didn't seem like a trustworthy character to have any medical um, expertise. Uh So so you've mentioned two very big factors, conformity and trust so far that, that play a role in whether or not either a fact or a belief will be accepted. Are there others? Well, <laughs> if you think about the instance in which someone's going to accept or deny a belief, so say you are looking on Twitter, someone says something, um, maybe it's looks like the uh, you know laboratory outside of Wuhan released the novel coronavirus, which they had created on purpose. So there's some claim like this. Now you have a moment as a social learner where you have to decide, am I going to take up this idea or reject it, right? And as we've said, trust and conformity both go into that. Now there are a lot of other things that go into it as well. Uh, does it fit with my other ideas? Um, does it make sense with the things I've learned in the past? Is it a coherent idea? So all of that has more to do with our sort of individual rationality and reasoning. But also when we talk about something like trust, it's not like that's a simple factor. There's so much that goes into whether you trust something you've heard and the person sharing it. I mean, so this person who shared this idea with you, do you think of them as an expert? Have they shared true ideas in the past? Do you think of them as a member of your in-group? Do you think of them as someone who's like you? Are they someone who shares a lot of beliefs with you? Are they part of your political party? So there's actually a very complex kind of stew of factors that shape whether people will take up a new idea or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an old joke you probably know whose uh, punchline is, Who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? (laughs) Uh, I I thought of that when I read the studies of people's judgment of the size of President Trump's inauguration crowd. Tell us about that. Yeah, so these were studies done in the U.S. shortly after President Trump was inaugurated. So there were these claims that he made and other members of his um, administration that his inauguration crowds were huge, you know, the biggest that had ever showed up for an inauguration, whereas other evidence suggested that, in fact, the crowds were much larger for both of the Obama um, inaugurations. So these researchers uh, took two pictures, one of the Trump crowd and one of the Obama crowd. And in the pictures, it's just very clear there are more in the Obama crowd. You can just count, you know, you can look at it and see that. But they asked a bunch of people, okay, which of these pictures has more people in it? And what they found is a sort of surprising number of Trump supporters looked at the pictures and said that there were more people in the Trump inauguration picture, which leads to this really interesting question. What does it mean when they say that? They can just look and see that that's not true. 
But part of what's going on is, you know, a kind of in-groupism. So they are conforming with Trump and other conservatives who are saying, look, there were more people at the inauguration. And so they're expressing, I think that's true, even if this picture doesn't show it. Um, there's kind of also something going on that might have to do with signaling your in-group membership, where you're trying to say, look, I'm part of this team. And so when you say you believe something, sometimes what that means is not, I literally believe this, but I'm part of this group and I'm not going to you know, turn my back on them. So it's a kind of loyalty. It can be loyalty. a kind of loyalty. Yeah. Huh. Huh. And and does that bear any relation to the fact that false beliefs uh, are spread more quickly and widely on the internet than correct beliefs? Well, so as far as the statement that false beliefs spread more quickly and widely, I'll just point out that's it's very context dependent. You know, there are many cases where true beliefs spread very quickly and widely and false beliefs die out. Um, one big difference that makes a difference there has maybe less to do with, um, you know, this kind of polarized political in-group mindset and more to do with the way that false things are unconstrained. So if you're going to tell the truth, there's only a very small number of ways to tell it, right? You're, what you're going to say is really controlled by what is actually true, Whereas if you're going to say something false, well, there are many, many more false things you can say. And a lot of those are totally fascinating, emotional, grippy, um, attention grabbing. And so when you look at the spread of true and false beliefs on the internet, that's one thing that really matters um, is that this lack of constraint means that people who write false things can write stuff that's just super compelling. Mm-hmm. Given that, it's amazing that any sliver of truth ever gets through. Uh, on the one hand, it's hard to discern or judge the truth. And on the other hand, there are vested interests in promoting their own views that are tangential to the truth. So t- tell us a little about fake news. Is it a new phenomenon? Well, fake news is not a new phenomenon, of course. Um, now, if you look at basically the advent of any new kind of media, you see the spread of misinformation on that new media. So with the advent of easy printing or the advent of the radio or um, television, and you see the spread of what we might call fake news, right? And if we go back even further, people have been passing false beliefs, rumors, misinformation from person to person from time immemorial. As soon as people could communicate things to each other, this was happening. So none of that is new. But there are some things that seem to have changed with the advent of social media. And so I'll just flag a few of these. So one thing lots of people have pointed out is the speed of information spread and communication is so fast now that that's something new that, you know, a piece of misinformation can cross the globe in a second is new. Um, There are also new technologies that allow for the spreading of way more information than we ever could have before. So the amount of information bouncing around on the internet is just 
phenomenally large. And that's a new thing. And then another thing which is new and was much harder before. So if we talk about these propagandists, people are trying to control belief, whether it's you know, the Russian government or Coca-Cola, um, they can get online and pose as people who they're not, which was much harder before. So they can create a fake Twitter persona or a fake Facebook persona or someone on Instagram, and they can look like a trusted peer or a confidant, someone who you might usually trust to give you new information but you don't know that they aren't who they say they are. So they say, oh, I'm I'm a animal lover and check out this thing about, um, you know, Donald Trump. You, you don't know that they're not really an animal lover. Right. right. And what is ETF news? Who are they and what's their claim to fame? Oh, Lord. So ending the Fed news uh we talk about this in the book, huh? But this was something my co-author researched and wrote up. Can you remind me, they passed some significant information before the um, 2016 election in the U.S.? Yes. Were they the ones who published this thing about the Pope? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's coming back to me. So they published this news item, which I believe it was one of the most shared news items in the lead up to the 2016 election in the U.S. It was fake news. Um, It claimed to have been a statement from the Pope that he simply could not support Hillary Clinton for president because of her, uh, you know, criminality and corruption, if I recall correctly. Um, It was widely shared and got a lot of views and is believed to have been quite influential. In contrast to them, Um, journalists who have integrity and are struggling to do their job to inform the public as as well and truly as they can uh, are are struggling and um, they one of the ideas in journalism is that you present both sides of the situation or the argument why is that principle sometimes a problem in itself. Yeah. So this idea of people sometimes call it balance or objectivity or fairness in journalism, in many cases, it's a really important principle. So we shouldn't lose sight of that, uh, especially when it comes to, say, many political disagreements. Now, when it comes to scientific matters, in fact, it sometimes creates problems and it's been co-opted by propagandists, for example, big tobacco and oil and gas, um, to try to confound public belief. Because basically what they've done is said, well, um, whenever you say something about climate change, you have to both share the idea that climate change is happening and the idea that it's not happening. That would be fair. So they've you know, taken advantage of this norm of fairness, which is usually a good norm, to create what people sometimes call false balance. Because, of course, there's loads of evidence. I mean, just endless evidence that, you know, anthropomorphic climate change is real. It's happening. And very, very few serious people who think it's not. And so by treating these as sort of equal sides, you end up in a situation where you're way overweighting the false side. And so far, it seems to be a struggle for 
journalists to get out of that, <clears throat> to avoid that trap of feeling that they must be fair and have both sides. Yes, uh, I, yeah, I think it's an ongoing conversation among journalists. And I see a lot of debate and discussion about this, at least in the case of climate change. I think people are doing much better, but it took decades, really, to sort of get to better reporting about it. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's be practical at this point. What can be done to counter all the forces and dynamics that foster misinformation? (laughs) Well, there are many different prongs of approach that we can use to try to tackle misinformation. And it's such an enormous problem. The amount of misinformation and disinformation online is mind boggling. And there's, it's always new, there's always more coming. Um, So I tend to think what we want to do is envision ourselves as not trying to eliminate this, but as trying to control it the same way you might control a pest. If you have an ant problem, you might try to get yourself down to as few ants as possible, but, you know, assume there's going to be some ants around. Um, So given the scope of the problem, we need to be thinking about government responses, responses by platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, and responses by individuals and responses by academic researchers. Um, So the government should, of course, have dedicated groups whose job it is to fight misinformation and to research it to understand how to fight it better. Um, So the EU has actually done quite well with this compared to, say, the United States. All of the platforms, the major platforms, should, of course, have groups of their own dedicated to researching and fighting misinformation on their platforms. Now, many of them do, uh, but this should be considered something that is is of utmost importance, right? Um, Now, on the individual level, of course, we should all be taking personal responsibility for sharing things that are... Um, well-vetted, well-researched, coming from trustworthy sources. There also might be things we can do, like think of it as all of our job to kind of clean up our information environment and try to crowdsource some of this. So, um, you know, the question is, could we get all the teenagers who are currently playing, I don't know, World of Warcraft to try to do some bot hunting on Twitter instead? Uh, and then, of course, that's a great idea. <laughs> that's a wonderful idea from so many points of view. <laughs> well, yeah. I, yeah, I tend to think of it. Could we analogize this a bit to the way people responded to the litter problem that many countries developed in, say, the 60s and 70s, where it became everyone's job to clean up, right? Um, so, how can we make that a norm that everybody cleans up their informational environment? Um, and then, of course, there is a huge need for research because one thing we know about misinformation is that it's always changing. So, you know, the fake news we saw in, say, 2016, before the Brexit vote, before the U.S. election, before some other elections, um, where there'd be some site that looks like a news site and has a bunch of fake news articles. We almost never see that online anymore because people got savvy to it. But then the next thing comes up, if it's a saucy meme or... Um, a doctored video uh, or a catchphrase. And so we need constant research to be asking, okay, what is the new technique that 
um, propagandists are using that's showing up online? What's the new source of misinformation and how are we going to fight that? Who has an interest in doing that? <laughs> I mean, we all do. The public does. The, the, uh, the future of the republic uh, <laughs> and democratic government does. But where in the universe of, of people who could fund it or, or create structures to do that kind of very important research and oversight, where do you find the the interest and the commitment to it well so as you pointed out the people who really have an interest here are the public we this falls under um what we might sometimes call a public goods problem where there's something that um, needs to be done nobody individually might want to put in the work to do it but if it's not done we all suffer and so environmentalism is a classic public goods problem too Um, Who wants to throw away their litter? That takes more time and energy. But if you don't do it, you have a polluted earth, right? Um, So people have ways of solving these public goods problems. And there are different things, different ways to solve them. So legislation is, of course, terribly important. So um, as individuals, we should be putting pressure on our legislators to try to protect us from misinformation, to do what's necessary to keep our informational environments good. Um, And then norms and like individual norms can be tremendously powerful too. If we say, look, we're we're not going to tolerate this in our uh, informational spaces and we're going to put enormous pressure on people who share and create misinformation not to do it, that also can be powerful. Now, of course, it can be very hard to identify what is actually misinformation or disinformation online. So that makes that a little harder. Hmm. Yes, it does. And it seems like a big project that really needs a movement like the environmental movement and, and to, to rally people to act on this because it, it is quite overwhelming. Yeah. What? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, please go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. So, I mean, I think you know, there can be some attitude like, oh, this is just how the internet is and there's nothing we can do. But I think that's not the right attitude, that we can demand more of our platforms, our governments, ourselves and our peers to have a better informational space for ourselves. Yes, and and we must do that because without it, we really do go back to the dark ages where... Nobody knows anything uh, or has any means to know it. Now, toward the end, please go ahead. Oh, I just said there are tremendous harms. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Toward the end of your book, you made a radical suggestion that I'd like you to elaborate on. What you wrote is, is it time to reimagine democracy? Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely the thing that gets the most uh gets people's ire up the most in the book. So, um to be clear, we are in no way suggesting a movement away from democratic ideals. But what we point out is that there are many different ways that we um instantiate democracies. So we can look at different countries, even, you know, in my 
in the case of the U.S., different states within the same country. And see, there are different ways of aggregating people's judgments, their um, preferences to make decisions on the part of a large group. Um, Now, we point out that when you have a tremendously misinformed public, this becomes much harder and our current forms of democracy are in some ways failing us. They're failing to represent our values, to protect us, to act in our best interests because of misinformation and disinformation. And so the question is, are there other ways to do it that protect us from these widespread um, false beliefs? And do you have an idea well, of so, what might be your way? Yeah, one thing that is relevant here is that often um, in cases when you vote and when you're voting for candidates, it ends up being as if you're voting about matters of fact. So in the U.S., we keep voting as if we're saying, well, climate change doesn't exist. It isn't happening. Um, But the fact that we voted that way, of course, doesn't change the reality. So what we ask is, is there some way to vote where what we're doing is voting for people who will represent our kinds of values? You know, do I value um, freedom from government intervention? Do I value the prevention of harm? Uh, Do I value the lives of children? Vote for values, but not vote for facts. So use real expert judgment in deciding what decisions are going to best meet these values given the facts that are really true. Hmm. That would be an interesting way to run a campaign. It's all very difficult to actually do in reality. <laughs> yeah, reality sometimes just gets in the way, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Great ideals. Well, Kaylin, you've been very generous with your time and your ideas, and I really appreciate it. But before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now. Yeah, so um, my co-author, James Weatherall, and I, we have a new grant to continue work on misinformation and disinformation, and we're studying some different things under this grant. One of the things we've been talking about recently that I've been kind of excited about is work that um, I started with Travis LaCroix and Anders Geil, two students, um, where we're looking at retraction of information. So especially in the COVID pandemic, we've seen all these cases where information gets out there and it's plausible information. It comes from scientists. Um, Maybe it's peer reviewed, maybe it's a preprint, but it's just a little bit uh, underbaked. You know, the study wasn't quite done. It wasn't reviewed yet. It wasn't didn't maybe have enough people in it. But because people are so desperate for information, it gets out there. So journalists start publishing on it and you'll see these huge articles in every venue about this kind of thing. And then sometimes these things turn out not to be true because of course they're under-tested. They're not really ready for prime time. And we can try to retract that information, but often it turns out to be very difficult to retract information once it gets out there because it's spreading throughout the internet. And you can't claw it back. You can't tell every person who heard a false thing, oh, it turns out that was wrong. So we've been really interested in looking at the dynamics of retraction on social media. So how do retractions spread? Do they spread as quickly as original false claims? Do they reach the same people? What sorts of things about social network make them more or less effective? So that's a new project. 
Wow, that's really important. That's I wish you a lot of luck in that. Uh, well, thank you for your important work and for being on the show today. And uh, continue to be healthy with your family and stay safe. <laughs> oh, thank uh, you. You too. <laughs> and thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Well, bye thank bye. you for having me on. Bye-bye, Renee. It was a pleasure.